church, would you remain standing with me as we read Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 5. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than the sons and the daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Dear friends, before we wade back into these deep and emotional and personal waters this morning, I feel I need to give you a word of exhortation. Several years ago, maybe six or seven, we walked verse by verse through the book of Judges with my small group on Sunday morning. Some of you here in this room were a part of that study. And if so, then you very likely remember the repetition. Over the course of 350 years, now the book covered 350 years. It didn't take us 350 years to cover it. But over the course of 350 years, there were seven repeating cycles. God's people would rebel against him. He would hand them over, raising up a foreign nation to oppress them. The people would call out to God, begging for mercy. God would send to them a judge, a savior with a lowercase s, who would come and lead them, fight for them, carry them into freedom. The people would get comfortable. They'd become fat and happy, fall right back into the same old sins, and the cycle would repeat. But there was one statement in that book. In fact, it was the very last verse of the entire book, which just jumped off the page. It's stuck in my heart ever since this day, ever since that day. It was Judges 21, 25, where we read, In that day there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Dear friends, may that never be said of us. You must know that there are church houses all throughout this country full of people that are willing to acknowledge the narrow gate which leads to eternal life. They're comfortable claiming Jesus Christ as king. They're comfortable with the fact that he and he alone is the only way to eternal life. But they believe that as soon as they walk through that narrow gate, they're free to go wherever their eye sees fit. I've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. I've walked through the narrow gate. Now I may travel left or right or anywhere that my eye would carry me. Dear friends, but what Jesus has said is that narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. And few will find it. See, people are comfortable. They're comfortable acknowledging that there is only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Because that's just a moment in time. It costs them very little. Okay, I've come to believe and to confess this thing. Now I can go back to walking just like all the rest of the world. It's the hard way that they reject, not necessarily the narrow gate. But dear friends, you must know that the narrow gate of Jesus Christ will never lead to the broad way of this world. The narrow way, the narrow path of Jesus Christ is exactly that. It is narrow and it is hard. And so for those of us that would confess Jesus Christ as Lord, for those of us that would express a desire to follow him all the days of our life, we must know that this path is narrow, more narrow than you could ever imagine. 
And that path is hard. It is harder than you could ever expect. And it is only Jesus Christ who leads. Follow me was the call. We have sought desperately to do that as we have walked through this study. These last three weeks have been tough. Today will be tough. But dear friends, a question that you must ask yourself is, do I lead and Jesus follows? Or does Jesus lead me down the narrow and hard path and will I follow no matter what the earthly cost? Because we return this morning for a third time to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. I had someone say to me this week that this was a series that made me very, very angry. I don't do series. This is one very long sermon with some cliffhangers built in. Do you understand me? So go ahead and stand on your feet, please. The reverence are reading of God's word. We're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. This is the word of God. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What has Moses commanded you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All God's people said, Amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? And would you show me myself? Would you show me yourself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So I really struggled to figure out, because this is our third week in this same text, I really struggled to figure out where God would have us to jump in. And I need you to know that because I have such a deep desire that no one be left behind, I was very, very tempted to do a recap of everything that we have talked about in these previous weeks. But the problem is we've already spent two weeks doing that. And to do that again this morning would eat up all of the time that we have available to us. And so I have no choice but to work from the assumption that you have all either listened to the last two messages or that you will go back and listen to the last two messages at some time this week. And what you will find there is that this interaction in Mark chapter 10 here in these first few verses is Jesus Christ offering a straightforward answer to a straightforward question. The Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds after some back and forth. Jesus gives a straightforward answer. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Once in the house, the disciples ask him for some clarification. Because you see, in first century Palestine, the idea of divorce and a divorce certificate, the very basis behind it was that it freed a woman to remarry without being counted as an adulteress. But Jesus tells them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I may not have made this as clear as I should have last week, but I need to reference this now. What Jesus says to husbands in this context applies to wives. I will almost always speak from the male perspective because that's where I live. But most of what Jesus says here, and he generally makes that clear, but I may not have made it clear enough. What Jesus says here when he speaks to husbands, this applies to wives. That in and of itself was a bit revolutionary. The idea is that men could commit adultery against their wives, that was completely foreign to many people living in that day. 
And even the idea that women could file for divorce, while it was coming into vogue, it was not nearly as widely as accepted as it is today. But Jesus says, not only should you not divorce your wife, but to divorce your wife and to marry another is to commit adultery. See, apparently, even divorce, even legal divorce, did not so separate that which God had brought together as to allow a man to remarry without it being considered adultery, without it being considered cheating on the one with whom God has joined him together. Again, this is truly unheard of for Jesus to speak in such straightforward terms. He wasn't siding with any of the rabbis of the day. He wasn't placing himself among the most conservative Jewish people of the day. This was a radical new teaching. No divorce, no remarriage, no exceptions. We read the almost identical teaching from Luke's gospel. We read in Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Saying not only is remarriage after divorce adultery, but to marry a divorced woman also makes you an adulterer. You see, marriage is, as we talked about in our first week, marriage is the joining together of two flesh into one by God. And only God is the one that has joined them together. Only God has the right to separate them. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, they would presume to speak for God and say that they have that right to separate what God has joined together. But what God makes clear in Romans 7, and then again in 1 Corinthians 7, is that the way in which God separates that which he has joined together. Whether we're talking about what he has joined together in the making of life, in the terms of body and soul, or that which he joins together in marriage, in terms of man and woman. If God chooses to separate that, he will do that through the act of death. Man does not have the right to do either. And so, based on these seemingly straightforward teachings... Based on the best understanding I can come to of what Jesus has plainly said in his word, what the Apostle Paul has plainly said in referring to what Jesus has said in his word, I have no choice but to come to the conclusion that Jesus meant exactly what he said here. I've landed, as I told you last week, in a place that is called the permanence view of marriage, that what God has joined together in marriage truly cannot be torn apart by men. But you must know, as I told you last week, that puts me in a very, very, very tiny minority. The vast majority of Protestant believers all throughout this country, they hold to what is called the permissive view. And somebody told me yesterday, that's probably not a fair term. I didn't create it. That's just the term. You've got the permanence view guys, which are me and about two other dudes in the whole wide world. And then you've got the permissive folks. And the permissive folks, what they believe is that God has made an allowance in his word for man to divorce his wife in instances of infidelity or abandonment by a non-believer. So if you hold to this view, if you came into this place holding to that view, if you walk out of this place holding to that view, you're in very, very, very good company. I'm talking about men that I've looked up to for my entire believing life, preachers that I couldn't carry water for. So I'm, I'm telling you, do not feel badly if you come into this place and don't believe what I believe on this. Don't feel badly if you hear what I have to say and you walk out of here believing something altogether different. I won't say that to you often. Many times I'm going to stand in this place and I'm going to say, thus says the Lord. To disagree is a real big problem. But I'm telling you, there's room for grace and there's room for disagreement on this topic. But I have no option. I have no option under the conviction that has come to in my heart with regards to these texts. I have no option but to side with the early fathers. Those who for the first 500 years of the church held that God had so inseparably joined together man and woman in marriage that man may not ever separate it to the degree that if he were to separate from his wife, even in a thing that this world calls divorce, if he were to separate from his wife, he cannot go and marry another without it being counted as adultery. So 
the people that reject this traditional view, the vast majority of the Southern Baptist and Protestant world, they point to three particular texts as evidence for why God has made this allowance. One is Matthew 5, one is Matthew 19, and the other is 1 Corinthians 7. Now, we covered the first of these. They're called the exception clauses. We covered the first of these exception clauses at, at pretty great length last week. Again, I would ask you to go back and, and listen to that. But Matthew 5, 31 through 32, this is in the middle of the Sermon on, on the Mount. Jesus has just really opened up the law of God and shown these people how much deeper it goes than they could have ever imagined. He's calling them to radical life of obedience within the kingdom of God. And then he says these things, Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, I pray that you will go back and listen to last week's sermon when I could really unpack this. And I pray that even if you don't want to listen to that sermon and you just have questions, please come to me. You see, the job of a shepherd is not just to point to some green grass off in, the, off in the distance and wish his sheep good luck. It's to walk along that dangerous and difficult path with them. It is my honor to do this, and so I plead with you. If you've wrestled with these things, you've heard what I had to say, you've wrestled with the Word of God, and these things just don't make sense in your heart, my door is always open. I, I beg you to come to me, and because every situation is different. There are so many variables in every single household, and you want to know, how does God's word apply to this particular situation? My door is always open. Come to me, and I'll make time, and we'll wrestle with this. But as I attempted to show you last week, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, he is not making an allowance for an exception of divorce and instances of infidelity. In fact, what he's doing is he's talking about adultery. What he's saying is that if a man sends his wife away for any or no reason at all, for that wife to remarry, to come together physically with another man, that counts as adultery. Now, if the husband has sent her away for no reason, we called it last week burning the toast. That man has sent his wife away for burning the toast. He is the one that has caused. He is the one that has made his wife to commit this adultery. But it's adultery nonetheless. We tried to slow down and focus in on this. And we asked at the end of this, we asked at the end of this, let's just take a tally. Before we move on to the next of the exception clauses, let's just take a tally of all that Jesus has said about divorce and remarriage. He has said very clearly in Mark and Luke that man shall not separate that which God has joined together. No divorce, no exceptions. He's now saying in Matthew that the following circumstances classify as adultery. A woman remarries after her husband sends her away for no good reason at all. A woman remarries by extension after her husband has sent her away for having sexual immorality within that first marriage. A man who marries a woman that's divorced no matter why she's divorced. Do you see how narrow this gets real, real, real quick? Even if you hold to what we call the permissive view, you need to understand it is far more narrow than most people would have you to believe. Most people would take this view that tells you that there are these allowances in Scripture. And again, it is your right to hold to those. I, I, I will not come against you. I will not speak against you if you hold to those. But you need to see just how narrow it gets, just how quickly, even in those texts that you can point to and say, I find my allowance here. This is not a loophole, dear friends. This is not a license to follow your spouse around trying to catch them doing badly so that you can sever that tie and then go remarry. Narrow is the way. Hard is the path. Even if you want to hold to this view. But there's still one party that's yet to be addressed. And that's the man whose wife has committed sexual immorality against him, or vice versa, the woman whose husband has committed sexual immorality against her. What happens here? 
What happens to that man? Well, Jesus seems to address her in the second of those acceptive clauses, exception clauses. We see it in Matthew 19. That's the parallel to this morning's text in Mark 10. Now, the conversation is recorded in almost identical terms. It's somewhat different pattern, but really almost identical terms. And here we find in Matthew that very same prohibition. What God has joined together, let not man separate. That gets lost somehow in translation. Even in this text that we would point to and say, perhaps this gives me the right to divorce and remarry. We must recognize that Jesus' answer to the straightforward question of the Pharisees is, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Those words just ring through my head. I can't get over those words. But we then find this statement, Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, before we even dig into this text, I think it is fair for us to just go back and think about, okay, this man has divorced his wife for no reason whatsoever. She was a faithful wife. She was a loving wife. She was a submissive wife. But this man decided he found no favor in his eyes. That's what the rabbi, uh, Hillel, taught. Rabbi Hillel taught that if you look to your wife and you see she's not as pretty as some other girl on the street, you have the right to send her away. So let's play that scenario. A man looks to his wife of his youth and he says, I find somebody prettier over here. I send you away. Jesus has said clearly in Matthew 5, for that woman to remarry, that is adultery. Are we then to believe based on this statement that if that woman can just check, catch him checking out this other girl, if that woman could perhaps catch him having some physical relations with that other girl and she can get to the courthouse and file first, that now she is free to file for divorce and she is free to remarry. I'm not trying to play word games here. I'm trying to show you the kinds of semantics, the kinds of arguments that you're going to pigeonhole yourself into if you hold to the exception clause of Matthew 19 and deal with what Jesus said in Matthew 5 and deal with the rest of what Jesus said all throughout his Gospels. It simply does not seem to jive. But we do have to deal with what's here. We do have to deal with the fact that the text is here. Just because it doesn't make sense to us, just because it seems to put us into a scenario where there's all kinds of contradictions, just because it seems to put us in a scenario where the deciding factor whether or not you can divorce or remarry is whether you can catch your spouse cheating first and file before they do, just because that doesn't seem right to my mind, just because that doesn't seem to settle in my spirit, does not make it a solved case. The verse is still there, and you still got to deal with it, dude. See, that's what pe- pre- pastors do. They come into the pulpit, they find a verse that doesn't make sense, they talk all around it, they act like it was never there, and they say, case closed, go in peace. We can't do that. The verse is there and you've got to deal with it. So what's happening here? Because if Jesus has in fact extended this allowance, if Jesus has in fact said that one party, the innocent party in cases of sexual immorality, he has the right to divorce and remarry. If my understanding is completely wrong, if I've somehow completely missed the mark, if I somehow, somehow I'm faulty in the way that I think through this, if Jesus really has said that sexual immorality is the one singular sin that can tear apart that which he has said all throughout Scripture is not separable, then I dare not take away that right. I dare not be one degree more restrictive than my Lord Jesus Christ, and I dare not call an innocent man an adulterer. So I've got to deal with the verse. I've got to deal with what's said here. So it's a big buildup, right? So... What do we do with Matthew 19, 9? How do we make sense of that in light of all the other clear, straightforward teaching? I don't know. I I can't be 100% sure. That's why you've got people that fall in both camps. That's why you've got me over here, the one stupid permanence guy, 
and you've got the rest of the world over here. I've got a potential answer for you, and I'm going to present that to you in a minute. But I need you to hear me, and I need you to hear me clear. I don't stand in this pulpit and tell you I am the one guy in 2,000 years of church history that have nailed this thing shut. And I'll tell you frankly that part of what bothers me so much about so many pastors that pe preach the permissive view is they act like the opposite is true. They ignore the fact that you've got this mountain of straightforward teaching from Jesus Christ, and they act like this one sentence over here can just be read in a vacuum. You don't have to, un you don't have to look at the overarching teaching of Scripture. You don't have to wrestle with the spirit of marriage. You don't have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus takes you back to the beginning and says, this is my Father's good, good and perfect standard. And so, here's what I believe is happening here in Matthew 19. This is my saying. If I were Paul right now, I'd say, thus say me, not the Lord, but I'm not inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm just a dude telling you. But as best I can understand what's happening here in Matthew 19, 9, it has to do with the specific word that is used with regards to the sin in question. You'll notice that the exception is in cases of sexual immorality. Read it in your Bible. It says, except in instances, except in cases of sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia. But he says, for the woman to remarry is for her to commit adultery. That Greek word is moikos. Why would he use two different words? As you know, adultery, moikos, that is sexual activity between a married person and someone that is not their spouse. Whereas porneia, sexual immorality, that is a much broader range of sexual sin. It can include adultery, but it can also include incest, bestiality, homosexuality, or just regular old fornication. So why would Jesus use these two different terms? Now we see it again similarly in Matthew 15, 19, where Jesus says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and sexual immorality. So clearly there is some differentiating factor here. Clearly both Jesus and Matthew know there is a difference between porneia and moikos, sexual immorality and adultery. So why would Jesus refer to sexual activity within the marriage confines, that which we would classify as adultery? A married person having sexual activity outside of marriage with someone that is not their spouse, that is adultery. Why would Matthew and Jesus use this word porneia? Now there's a number of thoughts why. I'm gonna, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to recommend a book if you're interested. This isn't really an easy read. It's pretty technical stuff. But there's a dude named Gordon Wenham, W-E-N-H-A-M. He wrote a book called Jesus and Divorce. Now, let me tell you, I don't know what this dude thinks on anything else in the whole wide world. So I do not endorse any of his other teaching or his political views or how he treats his dog or anything else. I, I don't know anything else about the dude, but I know on this topic, he does an incredible job of breaking down what's happening here. Not only at the linguistic level, not only wrestling with the Greek, but taking us all the way back to the ancient Near Eastern cult, uh, culture and their ideas about marriage and divorce and adultery and remarriage. Because that's the goal here. You see, when we come to a text that we can't understand, it isn't that we sit around in a circle and say, what does this mean to you? What we need to understand is, what did Jesus mean by what he said? And secondary to that, how would it have been heard by the first century audience that heard it? And so this guy does a pretty good job of trying to put us back in that position to hear Jesus' words as if we were standing there in that culture. Taking away all of our common conceptions about marriage and remarriage and divorce and taking us all the way there. And again, I think that's critical because so many pastors, they come to this, they come to this position and because it's so much easier to preach the other side, they just go there and they don't wrestle with what Jesus has actually said. They don't unfold the text. And so what I believe is happening here based on Jesus' use of the word porneia and moikos in separate instances, I believe that it points back to Jesus' birth. I believe it points back to what happened with Joseph and Mary in the beginning of Matthew. 
what you'll find in Matthew's gospel, there in Matthew 1, what you'll find is that Joseph had some suspicions. Joseph and Mary, they were not yet married. They were betrothed. Now, betrothal in first century Palestine, betrothal was a much more serious thing than common engagement. It was a deeper commitment. It was a contract to be married. It was a thing which, if it was going to be dissipated, if you, were going to, if you were going to separate from this betrothal, it required a very, very lengthy and significant activity. It's often referred to as divorce. That's what you'll find in Matthew 1. He refers to it as divorce. In addition to that, what Matthew refers to Joseph and Mary, he refers to them as husband and wife. You're beginning to see the significance of betrothal as opposed to what we call contemporary engagement. And so, in instances of sexual immorality during this period of betrothal, there would have been great pressure upon the man to do something about it. You see, today we view marriage as just a completely solitary thing. My marriage is my business. It's not your business whatsoever. But in Jewish culture of the day, marriage was a much more public affair. And so, for a woman to commit indecency, sexual immorality against her betrothed, there would have been great pressure on Joseph to send her away, to deal with this thing. And so what we read here, Matthew tells us in, in, uh, in Matthew 1, beginning of verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, Joseph thought Mary had committed porneia indecency, unfaithfulness. And so, and, and Joseph was right to, to think this. It certainly appeared as if this was what had happened. And so the angel came and told him the rest of the story. So Joseph looks to his wife, and it appears as though she's committed pornea because they've not come together physically yet. They have not yet consummated their marriage. That's why it would be right for him to call this pornea and not adultery. Now, 30 years later, we see a hint to this. Is the Pharisees are in an encounter with Jesus. Jesus refers to them as sons of the devil. Their response to him in John 8, 41 is, we were not born of sexual immorality. That's porneia. We were not born of sexual immorality, for we have one Father, our God. This is an accusation. They're saying, Jesus, we weren't the ones born of porneia. We weren't the ones born of sexual immorality. You were. They were questioning his legitimacy. Just like when Jesus went back home to Nazareth. Nazareth, we covered this. Jesus was in Nazareth, and they're saying, isn't this the son of Mary? That was a backhanded attack on Jesus saying, look, we don't know who your daddy is. We're going to call you the son of Mary because we can't trust that this Joseph dude has anything to do with it. We certainly don't assume God is your father. So they're attacking her on the basis and attacking him on the basis of porneia. I don't think it can be any coincidence that in the only gospel where we read this proposed exception clause, this only, only gospel where we are told that except in cases of sexual immorality, divorce is considered adultery, I don't think it's any coincidence that's the very same gospel where we point back to the story of Mary and Joseph. It seems to me as if what's happening here is he's saying, in all instances, divorce is wrong. In all instances, uh, remarriage after divorce is adultery. But you must remember what Joseph did for that was just. And the scripture tells us this, that Joseph was just in what he did. He being a just man, he desired to send his wife away, to divorce her quietly, rather than making a big public scene about this. Why would scripture say that that was just to send his wife away and then Matthew come back here and condemn him? I believe that's exactly what he was doing. I believe he was pointing back to that issue, to that picture. Now, it's fair for you to sit there and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, dude. You're getting real, real restrictive with the word porneia. You're, you're expecting me to believe that the first century Jewish hearers, the first century belief, 
believers that heard Jesus teaching and they heard him say, except in instances of pornea, you're telling me that you believe that they narrowed this thing down and they understood it to be this one story pointing all the way back to the birth of Jesus Christ? That's a fair question. But here's my question for you. What have you always been told about this exception? That a man can divorce his wife and remarry in case of adultery. That's not what Jesus said. He said pornea. So who are you to take the word pornea and restrict it down to just adultery? Pornea is any manner of sexual sin. So do we then have license to divorce our wife because we catch her looking at something on the internet she ought not? Because she brings something into the bedroom she ought not? Because she lusts after another man? You see, in any instance, you've got to figure out what does pornea mean? And you see the way that Pandora's box gets opened up if we start to present this as an exception clause. But again, there are many people that hold to that. And, and again, that is your right. Each man must preach and live in accordance with that which he has been convicted. I simply must combine what I see with Jesus 19.9 saying with all the rest of what I know about Jesus' teaching. With the overarching teaching of Scripture. With the picture that is meant to be painted in marriage of the unbreakable covenant between Jesus and his church. And with the fact that Jesus points us all the way back to his good and perfect standard at the beginning of time. Now, if you're going to hold to the exception clause, if you're going to believe that, that truly is an allowance, you've got to say that I believe then that what's happened in Matthew and in Luke, and Mark and in Luke, excuse me, is that it is simply assumed that you would understand this. It was assumed that those readers would understand this thing that hadn't been recorded yet. Would assume this thing that hadn't been recorded in the gospel yet. But so, I tell you, as I told you last week, there is room for great levels of disagreement on this. And what it demands for us is nothing but grace and love and mercy. If you're a member of this faith family and you hold to this permissive view, you fall on that side of the aisle. If you believe what the majority of Protestant preachers teach, if you believe that in cases of, of sexual immorality, in cases of adultery, that you have the right by God to divorce your spouse and to marry again, you will not hear a peep from me. If you have studied the Holy Scriptures, if you have heard all that I've had to say, you have gone to your Lord in prayer, you have truly sought to have the mind of Christ and to obey his every last commandment, and you come to the end of this thing and you think, I am free to divorce and I am free to remarry. Dear friends, go in peace. You will not hear an objection from me. You will not hear an objection from any of your leadership here at this church. But you need to know that I have wrestled with, this, with these things. And if you come to me with, for counsel, I have no choice but to teach you that which I believe Scripture says. And you will never hear me counsel you to divorce. I have and I will counsel separation at times, especially in instances of sexual or emotional or physical abuse. I have and I will counsel that you need to time out. You need to pull away. You need to allow your spouse to feel the weight of their sin. But I cannot counsel divorce based on what I understand from God's word. In addition to that, I cannot in good conscience perform a second marriage. Again, this is not even the universal belief amongst all of our staff. I'm not I don't say this like you poor things. I have figured this out. You poor things. I'm going to make an allowance because you can't so you simply can't ascend to my level and understand this thing. No difference. This doesn't make you any less holy. Does not make you any less righteous. Doesn't make you any less desiring to follow after God's word if you have truly done this work, if you are truly convicted of this thing. But my encouragement to you today is make certain that you are truly convicted that that's what God's word has said. Do not turn a blind eye and say, I just don't want to think about it because it's going to hurt. I don't want to think about it because there might be consequences in my life. Wrestle with God's word and let him beat you up. And if you come out of the backside and you're determined that I'm the one that is confused, then, then bless my heart. 
Each man must determine for himself what he said. This, like every other secondary issue, allows great room for grace and forgiveness and fellowship. And this is not going to destroy this church. This is not going to be a cause for separation. This is not going to be a cause for infighting whatsoever. This is a secondary issue. This just happens to be a secondary issue that stings really, really, really bad. This happens to be a secondary issue that is really, really, really personal and affects literally every single person in this room. I've yet to meet a person that isn't affected by divorce in some way through themselves or someone that they love. But there's one more exception clause I haven't got to yet. That's the one that we find in 1 Corinthians 7. What do we do about the man who, or woman who has been abandoned by their unbelieving spouse? Now, Scripture makes clear that a believer has no business being joined together, being yoked together with a non-believer. And there is no more intimate or significant partnership, of course, than that in marriage. And so he has already said that believers and non-believers ought not to be married, ought not to be unequally yoked. But at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, the church is only about 20 years old. And so you would have been dealing with either two Gentile non-believers that got married or perhaps two practicing Jewish people that got married and then one of them comes to faith in Jesus Christ. What about the other one? Certainly there would have been tension within the household over the faith and perhaps there would have been this doubt in the believing spouse's mind, is it okay for me to go to bed with this person? John Piper refers to them as enemies of the cross. Is it okay for me to lay with an enemy of the cross in light of all that I know about Jesus Christ? And so apparently they had asked questions like this to Paul. They'd ask questions like this. They'd ask questions about celibacy within marriage in light of the persecution to come. And so Paul begins chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. I'd ask you to turn there if you're not there already. Paul begins chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians like this. He says, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. This is a response. We're reading one side to our correspondence. But Paul gives us a very good idea of what he's responding to. He goes on to say that married couples should not, should not withhold any of God's good gifts from within that marriage. They should give themselves over completely. God has joined you together as one flesh. Then appoint, apart from a time of, of prayer and fasting, you should not stay apart. You should come together. This is right under the Lord. Then we see the direct teaching of Jesus Christ. This I teach you, not I, but the Lord. He is a charge from God that man should not divorce from his wife. A wife should not separate from her husband. And if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to him. Couples are joined together, bound together for life. And then we come to the third of these acceptive clauses, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. We covered this last week. He's saying, when he says, the Lord, not I, what he's saying is this is a direct statement from Jesus Christ. When he says here, I, not the Lord, he's saying I don't have a direct statement to this from Jesus Christ, but it doesn't make it any less the word of God. This is the authoritative word of God. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? So, it's clearly teaching the unbelieving wife, the unbelieving husband, you should not divorce. You should not separate. If they are willing to stay, you should remain steered for them, stay married with them, consistent with what Paul has taught elsewhere and what Jesus has taught. No divorce. 
The marriage is not tainted because one of you is a non-believer. This does not mean that the non-believing spouse is somehow saved because of their spouse. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's saying that this union does not become automatically unholy, nor are the children somehow under some special curse because one of the believers, one of the partners is a non-believer. He's saying, your marriage is okay. Your children are okay. But if the unbelieving partner chooses to leave, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the question is, what does this mean? Now, obviously, no one believes that a spouse who is abandoned by their unbelieving husband or wife, that they are somehow at fault in this. When we say innocent here, we do, we do not mean that they are innocent of all sin. But in this instance, I looked it up this week, last week, the week before, just to confirm. In Texas, if a spouse files for divorce, it doesn't matter whether you sign the papers or not. Eventually, the thing's going through. And so the, the, the question isn't, are you wrong? Even if we're not talking about mixed couples with regards to religion here, even if we're not talking about believer, unbeliever, if two people that profess to be believers and one of them decides to bounce, there's nothing you can do. You can't chain them down. But what I believe Paul is saying here is, particularly in the case of a believer and a non-believer, he's saying you're called to peace. Do not make war with that non-believer to force them to stay. Don't become obstinate. I would say the way this practically plays out, believing spouse, your non-believing spouse leaves, you ask them to come back, you seek for reconciliation, you hold faithful to their vows, and next thing you know, you get some divorce papers in the mail, I think you can sign them. I know that's a struggle for people. Am I sinning in this? God has told me not to be separated. God has joined us together. And I somehow sinning? Should I be obstinate in the proceedings? Should I just be a general jerk to make sure this thing plays out as long as it can? No, I think that's what he's talking about when he's talking about peace. Don't make war to hold on to your non-believing spouse. But the real question is, what does Paul mean when he says that the brother or sister is not to be enslaved? So those that hold to the permissive view, they believe that this means that they are free to now go and be remarried. Again, that is, that is your right, and, and go in peace. If that is what God would have you to believe. But again, in light of all the rest that we have seen, in light of all the rest of the context in 1 Corinthians 7, I find that very, very hard to believe. Firstly, because in the paragraph right before this, Paul says that he has a direct charge from Jesus. Don't get a divorce. But if you get a divorce, we would assume he's saying if you get a divorce, it's not your fault. If you get a divorce, it's outside your control. You should remain remarried or else be reconciled to your spouse. He says something very similar in verse 39. But even more compelling than that, perhaps, is the fact that Paul speaks in glowing terms about singleness. We see at the beginning of this chapter, in verse 6 through 9, he says that he wishes everyone was like he is. And he makes clear that he's talking about his gift of singleness. He urges unmarried people and widows to remain single unless they cannot control their passions. In verses 34, 32 through 34, he talks about all the advantages to single men with regards to service in the kingdom of God. Paul loves singleness. Paul celebrates singleness. Paul wishes that all could remain single. Would he then turn around and talk about singleness as being enslaved? I don't, I don't think so. Many do. Many do. Many say you are not enslaved to a life of singleness. I, I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here. I believe what Paul is saying here is you're not enslaved to fight to keep that spouse here. You're not enslaved to live under their authority. You're not enslaved to go out and make war against this spouse to cause him to stay. You may go in peace. Be at peace in your spirit. Be at peace with them, but remain single or else be reconciled to them. He goes on to say, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how, 
or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? Surely some of these people were familiar with Peter's teaching that a believing wife could perhaps lead her husband to faith through nothing but quiet submission. And he's saying, you can't be guaranteed that that's going to happen. So do not fight to cause your spouse to stay thinking that's the only chance that they're going to get saved. I would say to you that I believe, I've seen instances, and I believe there are instances where where a spouse holds her peace, where she commits to her vows. Even her spouse runs away. Even as her spouse abandons him, abandons her, even as her spouse makes it impossible for there to be reconciliation, and she says, you break your vows, I will not. I will remain faithful even as badly as this hurts. Even as lonely as I feel, I will remain faithful in this. I believe God can use even that to show the steadfast love of Jesus Christ and cause that unbelieving spouse to be drawn to him. I believe that God can do this exact thing. But I believe that what he's saying here is you have two options. You remain single or else be reconciled to your spouse until death do you part. And I know. I know this is where many of you part ways with me. I heard words of encouragement from many of you this week, and you have no idea how much that means. You felt the sorrow that I had in my heart last week, both coming into and going out of the sermon. And you don't know how hard Mondays are on a normal Monday morning, but on a Monday morning like that, to have words of encouragement from people throughout this church, it meant more than you could ever possibly know. But part of what I wanted to say as I talked to you was, wait until next week. Because I know many of you, as badly as last week's words stung, you knew they were true and you knew they were needed. But to look at an innocent spouse, to look at a man or a woman who finds himself now divorced through no fault of their own, either because their spouse has committed infidelity or because they've simply been abandoned, to look at that person and tell them, I'm sorry, but as best I can understand God's word, you are tied to that person until death. That seems just downright cruel. It seems utterly harsh. It feels unnecessarily restrictive. This was, I believe, the response of Jesus' apostles in Matthew's gospel. After Jesus delivered this saying, they said, why would a man ever get married then? You're telling me I'm joined to this woman for the rest of my life, no matter what? Why would a man ever get married? This is why I've unfolded so much scripture in this. You know I don't do this. I'm a dude that I deal with the scripture that's right in front of us. I'm not smart enough to veer off the path. We end up with a three-week sermon, if not. I'm a guy that I stick to the verse that God has in front of us, and I'm doing good to dissect that. But I could not, have a, I could not afford for you to believe that these were just my teachings. I could not afford you, for you to believe these are just my thoughts. I had to have you see how, how much I've wrestled with God's word to get to this point. I'd have you see that this is as best I can understand it, the teaching of your heavenly Father, as difficult as that teaching may be. And so I ask you, now that we've come to the end of dissecting all this, I've asked you to do that. I ask you to go back and wrestle and say, of what, based on what God has revealed of his character, based on the straightforward teachings of God, based on the portions of God's word that I can understand, when I come to this one difficult saying, and when I look at it in light of all that, and if God sets you free in that, then, beloved, you are free. Move forward in peace. Again, there will be no odds between us. There will be no conflict between us in this. But I would ask, and this is, the, this is the question that ran through my head over and over and over again throughout these weeks. Where else in Scripture do we find Jesus point back to his Father's good and perfect plan at the beginning of creation and say, well, to fall short is something other than sin? I, I, I don't find that. Forgivable sin, sin which is common to man, but sin nonetheless. 
And we cannot be a people that looks to this thing that we know to be sin and say, yeah, but God forgives sin. To presume upon the grace of Jesus Christ is a dangerous, dangerous thing. So I'm not talking to you people that are looking backwards upon your life at this moment. I'm talking about you people that are standing at the precipice of divorce, standing at the precipice of remarriage. And you're thinking, you know what? What that man says may be right, but I don't dare go in my prayer closet and ask God to tell me if it's true because that may change my plans. Dear friends, that's a dangerous line to walk. And so I plead with you to wrestle for it with yourself. Come to me and I will wrestle with you. I've got thick skin. Come to me and tell me I'm just an idiot and I've completely missed the mark. I'm happy to have those conversations with you because that is part of what God has called us to do together here in this body. But I'm asking you to do the work yourself, to do the deep dive yourself. And so at the end of this, there's going to be so many questions. And as I sat down to write my sermon this, this week, I tried to answer all of the possible questions, and I ended up with a sermon that was legitimately like four hours long. You can't possibly cover all the questions and all the scenarios. And so it seems right to me that I'm going to take a Wednesday night, not this Wednesday night. I need a break from this, as probably do you. But I'm going to take a Wednesday night soon, and I'm going to go through, and I'm going to try to answer all the possible questions, the practical questions that come into our lives as a result of this. But that doesn't do you a lot of good if you're sitting in a mess right now. So again, I plead with you. My door is open. There are people all throughout this church that have walked through my door, and they will tell you, I've got a comfortable couch and all the time in the world. We will call in women. You need to come to me. We will call in Leanne or one of the other ladies, and we will sit down, and we will talk through this, and we will see what God's will is for your life. And I promise you there will be no shame. There will be no judgment. There will be nothing but love and grace and mercy and comfort from the word of your heavenly Father so that wherever he leads you going forward, you can go forward with nothing but absolute confidence. Ladies, would you want to stand there on your wedding day having doubts about whether you're sinning against the living God? No. So let us do this thing together. Instead, I want to spend the time that is left with a word of encouragement. To our church at large, I want to say to you that if we're going to hold to this hard stance, I'm holding to this hard stance. Some of your church leaders are holding to this hard stance. If you've heard what I said, and you're going to believe that this is what Scripture has to say, then we must be a people who loves on divorcees well. We must be a people that does the hard things, especially with regards to single mothers. If we're going to look at divorced mothers who through no fault of their own find themselves sitting there raising these children, we're going to look to her and say, as best we can understand by God's word, you ought to remain single unless and until your spouse dies, then we must be willing to come alongside her and do whatever needs to be done. We cannot replace that one flesh union that God has provided in a spouse, but wherever possible and wherever needed, we must help to lift this tremendous burden that is now upon them. We must do everything we can to rob the enemy we must do everything we can to snatch away from Satan any tools that he might use to cause discouragement or doubt or anger or fear or disobedience in the life of our brother and sister. We must do everything that we can to come alongside them and help remove any barriers to obedience. We're calling people, not just in this area. I need you to know this. In every single area of our life within this church, I'm calling you people to radical countercultural obedience. And we must be a people that comes alongside each other and helps to remove burdens and barriers to that obedience. We cannot be a, peop a people that preaches the hard truth of scriptures and that just wishes people best along the way. We can't be a people that preaches the hard truths of, 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 of obedience and watches as people drown under the weight of the consequences of this world. We can't be a people that stands on the shore while people drown while hold, trying to hold on to obedience and say, try harder. Because here's what happens You've got a world full of people out there throwing them lifelines. 
saying, why are you trying so hard? You're drowning, dude. Why are you holding on to obedience to Jesus Christ? I thought he forgives sin. Why would you hold on to this thing? Give up. We've got a lifeline for you. We've got a way to make your life easier. So we can't stand back and just go, well, why aren't you kicking harder? Why aren't you trying harder? Look at me. I'm dry. Why are you so wet? No, 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 no. We get in the water. We drown too if that's what it takes. We come alongside them and we carry their burdens. We remove any obstacles to obedience. We're not just a people that says the hard things. We're a people that does the hard things. In addition to that, if you're a divorced person and you find yourself, you find yourself in this place after a divorce and you find yourself convicted by God that perhaps you should not remarry and you find yourself sitting in that place feeling the weight, the sorrow, perhaps the anger that comes along with that, dear friends, I want you to know that I weep with you. I'm, I'm broken by sin. I hate sin. I hate sin because it's an offense to our living God. I hate sin because it destroys lives. I hate sin because I love you. And love tells the truth. Love looks to those people that is the object of their love, and they tell the hard truth even when it risks offense. Love speaks honestly about sin and about the weight of that sin and the pain and the sorrow and the brokenness that comes as a result of sin and says, no matter how badly it hurts, do not allow previous circumstances. Do not allow previous sins. Do not allow previous hurts to cause you to disobey God going forward because you will regret it. Love tells the truth. I want you to know that if you stand here and you feel shocked as a result of these words, you're in good company. Matthew's, and Matthew tells us that the disciples felt the very same way. But what Jesus told them was, not everyone can hold to this teaching. This does not mean not everyone can hold to the teaching of remaining single. He's saying that the lost world does not have ears to hear and eyes to see. It is only those that God has touched by his spirit that brings you to understand this truth. And there you will find great hope. Dear friends, I would also remind you, that Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, he has caused you to much harder things than this. He has caused us to pain and suffering and loss, and he has promised to use every single bit of that for our good, to sanctify us, to mold us into his image. Don't pull back from that. Don't pull away from that. Trust in him. I'm pleading with, with you this morning. Don't fall for the lie. You see, I'm so terrified that the American church, we have made singleness into the one unbearable lot in all of Christian life. Endure cancer. Endure legs that don't work. Endure persecution. And, and, endure violence from your enemies. Endure being burned at the stake. Endure laying down your life if that's what it takes to hold fast to the cross of Jesus Christ. But being without a sin, without a, a spouse, that's simply too much to bear. God has caused you to, called you to harder things than this. I don't, I don't belittle the sorrow of loneliness. I need you to know, I won't go home at lunch if my girls are at school and my wife is somewhere else because I get lonely. If a man goes to the bathroom, I get lonely. I, I, I don't belittle the pain of loneliness. Not for one second, but dear friends, I'm here to tell you, you're not alone. I know that it's not the same, but you're not alone, and you're not broken, and you're not faulty. Jesus was single. 
Paul was single. The saints in heaven are single. Jesus has said, I will use you in tremendous ways. The verse that we read this morning, that David read this morning, he said, I will give you a name in heaven that is greater than sons and daughters. For those of you that are willing to walk in obedience, Jesus talks consistently throughout his gospel about the reality that all of these earthly relationships, they all pass away. There is no marriage in heaven. Fathers, mothers, children, those relationships, they all separate in the end, but the bonds that are bound by the blood of Jesus Christ, the relationships that are formed in a church just like this, they all echo off into eternity. Dear friends, I know the pain. I understand the pain of loneliness. I know how hard this teaching is, but dear friends, I'm telling you that obedience brings blessing the likes of which you could never imagine, eternal blessing, lasting blessing, and God will use you in the kingdom of God. Paul speaks about this. He says, I wish that you were like me so that you weren't divided in your attentions. Listen, I love my girls, and I love my children, but I constantly have, as I'm doing the work for the kingdom of God, I constantly have this pull to get back to them, to care for them, to give my affections towards him. He's saying, in your singleness, you're useful in the kingdom of God. There's blessings that a married person will not receive because they are married. There's opportunity. Opportunity you didn't ask for, but there's opportunity in singleness. There's no such thing as a saint that is not useful in the kingdom of God. Even if he finds you in a place where you will not ever again in your lifetime remarry. So we embrace those blessings. We trust in the goodness that comes as we walk in obedience. There's a story. You ever feel like somebody writes verses into your Bible that you didn't know were there previously? Like, where did that come from? I found one of those this week, and I texted Leanne. I said, hey, have you been typing in my Bible? Where did this come from? It's Luke 11, 27 through 28. Y'all probably already know this story. I'm just a stupid preacher. But what happens is Jesus is walking along the way, and a lady hollers out from the crowd, Jesus, blessed is the woman from whose womb you came and whose breast you nursed. Blessed is Mary the mother of Jesus. Do you know what he told her? No. Blessed is the one that hears the word of God and obeys. More blessed than being the mother of Jesus Christ is the blessing of hearing God's word and obeying. Dear friends, you will be blessed. This life is but a vapor. It is passing away. I pray, when did we get married? I was like 22 or something like that. I'm living to 72, so we got 50 years together. So 50 years of marriage, it is like a vapor. It will pass away. 50 years of singleness, it will pass away. But you have an opportunity to show to the world the satisfaction that you find in Jesus Christ and him alone. You have an opportunity to show to the world that I am complete and I am whole and I am redeemed and I am useful in the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ is my groom. Everything I need, I find in him. Particularly for those of you that have been divorced, you know that marriage does not satisfy you know that marriage does not complete. You know that only Jesus Christ can fill that hole. You know this. So I plead with you to hold on. If this is what God has led you to believe, hold on to this, and I've got to fly here. But to the married people, to the married people, one of the questions that comes up, and I do have to answer this one now, it's okay. If you're telling me to enter into a second marriage is to commit an act of adultery, does that mean that we then get, need to get a divorce? No. You have entered into real vows. You have entered into real vows and a real commitment by God. When Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, what did he tell her? You've been married five times. He didn't say you've been married once, and then there was four times you were playing house. These were each five marriages with real vows and real commitments. And God, by the power of his son's blood, he will cleanse, he will redeem, he will make your marriage as holy as you could ever imagine. And I've seen it, and I'm blessed by it. Dear friends, it's where you find yourself standing today is in a marriage. 
and you've not yet had this conversation. It may take some tough conversations, but don't you see? I've stood in this platform right now, and I've said, I sinned in marriage. The sin that I committed in marrying a non-believer is no more or less egregious than the sin of marrying um, when you shouldn't have because you were previously divorced. Don't you see? I sinned in my marriage. I've had that conversation. Dear friends, if you would go to your spouse and you would have these conversations, let's quit hiding sin. Let's confess sin, not just sins you brought into the marriage, but sins that you committed since you've been in the marriage. And would you trust the atoning work of Jesus Christ? Would you trust him to heal what is broken? Would you trust him to make your, make your marriage holy? And then, husbands, lay down your white life for your wife. Represent Jesus Christ in your home. Wash her with the cleansing word of God. I know how awkward that is. I know that you're not all skilled leaders. Guess what? That's not the criteria. If God has joined you together with a woman, whether it's your first or second or tenth marriage, if God has joined you together with a, with a woman, he is intending for you to be the head of that household. If somebody's going to go hungry, it better be you. Somebody's going to lose sleep, it better be you. If somebody's going to work five jobs to pay the bills, it better be you. But above all else, you better lead her. You're the head of the household. You lead her, and you lead her well. You lead her to the throne of Jesus Christ. More than seeing a big, bad man, she needs to see her husband standing before the big, bad God. I don't mean bad as in sinful. More than seeing you standing bravely before the, before the world, she needs to see you trembling on your knees before your creator. More than believing that you are somehow the world's one and only perfect husband, she needs to see you confessing your sin being broken of your sin, and wives submit to your husbands. I know it's hard because we're jerks. I know it's hard because we've dropped the ball so many times. I know it's hard because we've hurt you so much. But it's an act of obedience, out of love for God more than love for your husband, out of a desire to extend to your husband, not the forgiveness that he deserves, but the forgiveness that Christ has given to you. You submit, and then you watch as God heals marriages all throughout this church. You take divorce off the table. The first time you say the divorce word, it's hard. The second, the third, the fourth, it gets a whole lot easier. You've got to wrestle with these things before your marriage is in trouble, before the emotions sink in, before your stupid friends stop giving you start giving you advice. You wrestle with these things today while the waters are calm. You look to your spouse and you say, until death do us part. And you trust what God will do with this. Dear friends, single, married, unmarried, widowed, God will do a work in you and you will be blessed. Your church family will be blessed. The world will be changed as people hold to the radical view of marriage that God has set forth in his word. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, as thankful as I am to be done with this topic, Father, I thank you for the time that you have allowed us to wrestle with these deep, deep, difficult truths. Father, my deepest desire is that we would be, each be a people convicted, convicted and convinced of what you have said in your word, that we could move forward with absolute clear conscience and assurance that we are following, following, following the path that you would have for our lives. Father, as we move out of here, may we recognize that this call to radical obedience does not just extend to marriages. It is every single area of our lives. Help us be a people that lives with radical, self-sacrificing, self-forgetting, self-denying obedience in each and every way. Fathers, we seek to worship you now. We pray that you would be pleased by the meditations of our heart and the words of our lips. Your son's precious name we pray. Amen.